So today we're going to talk about ROI in HR and specifically tech. Uh, ROI in HR is a complex thing at the best of times and I'm excited about what we're going to learn and how it can be applied across the topics in HR. And here we are on the HR Hub podcast with me, Andrea Adams. Keep listening to learn about this topic and all kinds of things related to HR. You can also find me on YouTube. Today, my guest is Evelyn McMullen. Evelyn is the research manager at Nucleus Research. She's responsible for all the HCM research and their main work, Nucleus that is, is helping companies figure out what the ROI is of the tech solutions they're offering. And I've talked to her before and she explained it all so well. Hi, Evelyn, how are you? Hi, Andrea, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, I'm excited to have you because this is a bit of a daunting topic for us people, people. So we're going to talk about HCM and the ROI for HCM, but can we briefly unpack what you mean by HCM? Yes. So HCM stands for human capital management. It's technology that is employee facing or is used by HR departments. So I have a little pie graph here that goes into the case studies that we've done in different areas of HCM. So it's including but not limited to time and attendance, 4HR, payroll, scheduling, talent acquisition and recruiting, talent management, and benefits administration. These are the areas you've studied. Yes, exactly. Okay. So... What is your particular expertise related to ROI? Sure. So Nucleus Research is an independent analyst firm, and our main differentiator is that we focus on the financial value driven by the use of software more so than on the actual technology itself. So we've done more than a thousand case studies in our now almost 23 years of being around. We were founded in Boston. We are now headquartered in sunny Miami, Florida, although don't travel here right now. It is warm, muggy, and rainy as ever. Uh, And our primary clients are technology vendors that want to prove the value of their solutions, as well as business decision makers, uh, you know, people that are looking to bring on a new solution but want to make sure that they're going to make a good investment. And it's probably important to note that we are certified by NASPA. That's the National Association of State Boards of Accountancy. It's quite a mouthful, uh, but they're essentially the folks that do the CPA exams here in the States. So basically underscores that nothing about the way that we calculate ROI is proprietary. We just use general accounting practices. Just for the skeptics out there, these companies are paying you and obviously very interested in having a positive ROI on their product. So are you motivated to provide to you know, tell them that they have a positive ROI? Oh, of course, everyone wants to think that they have a positive or deliver a positive ROI. And of course, we would love to affirm that. Unfortunately, there are circumstances where that is not the case. And it's always difficult to deliver that news, but it's something that we've seen and things that have halted case studies in the past. Because of course, as an independent entity, we want to make sure that we are remaining independent in our assessment. Right. I guess that would, if you, if you weren't, then it would undermine your credibility, (laughs) which, which is your business model. Okay. So, uh, we need to decide what we are going to automate. 
when you're thinking about, you know, HR automating various functions, how do you think about it? So I think to err on the side of realism is probably the most important thing. Uh, the two factors in prioritizing what you want to bring technology on to either augment or replace uh, would be breadth, which is how many people the application will affect, and repeatability. So how often will they actually use the technology? Uh, so thinking about things like payroll processing, every employee gets paid. That's a pretty wide breadth. And right. repeatability, I would hope that you're at least doing payroll at least once a month. Right. So uh, that would be a prime example and definitely an area of our case studies that we have a keen focus on because it's so prevalent and it's an area that's really been uh, the forefront of automation, especially when people are starting out. Okay, so do you have any rules of thumb about ROI and automating? I sure do. <laughs> I sure do. And I think the number one rule of thumb is to beware of the bells and whistles. And what I mean by that is some cutting edge technology that maybe, you know, your workforce doesn't quite understand. You know, there's a lot of marketing hype out there, but there's no reasonable application. So I'm thinking as an example, anecdotally, I live in Miami. I don't need heated seats. <laughs> so it's great to have, but it, it doesn't make sense. So I think that, you know, when you're looking to bring on technology, you need to make sure that it's something that can be used because a solution that's never adopted always has a negative ROI. So I've got some questions about calculating ROI, and one of them is around you know, how an organization can increase the ROI through training and things like that. But mm -hmm. uh, I guess before we do that, we have to talk about how you actually calculate ROI. Yes. So we have a standard formula that we use for ROI, and that is the average of three years of net benefits over the total initial cost of the project. Now, there are different ways that organizations can calculate ROI using this formula. Uh, I've seen some companies do a five-year ROI average, seen some do a one-year, but we find that averaging out three years gives you a better idea of the scope of deployment because, you know, realistically, you implement a software, you're not using everything that you need in year one. Sometimes it takes more time to get things up and running, uh, to integrate things. So that's just kind of accounting for maybe a delay in benefit realization. Can we apply an example here? Like, what are all the things that you're factoring in when you're calculating ROI? Yeah. So the main steps to calculating ROI would be to estimate the costs and benefits. And those are the numbers that you're going to need to plug into the formula to then get your ROI. So to first look at the costs, uh, the specific categories that we typically go through when doing a case study are the cost of software, of course, the subscription, any product licensing fees, any hardware you might need to bring on. Maybe you need new time clocks for a time and attendance system. Uh, personnel, of course, whether that be internally setting up the system, providing support for the system, or externally with consulting or implementation fees from the vendor. Uh, other things, training, of course, trainer time, time of the employees being trained, and then miscellaneous things like maybe you have to travel to go do an on-site training, 
Maybe there's some printing costs involved. We've seen a lot of interesting miscellaneous things. Uh-huh. And so that all goes into the cost. What about the benefits? Like some of the benefits in HR are so, are really hard to calculate. I mean, maybe not, yeah, and I, but, but uh, like, I mean, if we were going to implement an LMS, uh, that's, you know, a lot of intangible benefits. It seems very intangible. And I think that's why HR application or ROI application in HR has been kind of shied away from because there's like, oh, that's no point. HR is a cost center. You've probably heard this before. And I know we're, I, we're setting that mindset shift, but I think there's still a lot to be done. So, you know, quantifying seemingly unquantifiable benefits for HR, we first look at direct benefits. So, for example, if you were able to reduce redundant headcount, if you were able to reduce the cost to print and distribute paychecks by bringing it all into a technology solution and digitizing it, uh, maybe by not running payroll manually, you don't have to pay regulatory fines for noncompliance reduce storage fees. So many companies I've talked to, one of their biggest benefits was that they were able to get rid of a bunch of paper and a bunch of filing cabinets. Mm. And that's a sneaky savings because you don't think much about it until you realize how much paper you are using and uh, quite a bit. And I would say another example is if you are offboarding an old solution. So maybe you have a legacy system that's really expensive to maintain and offloading that cost in favor of a cloud solution is typically a savings there as well. Yeah, like a lot of uh, times now, like most companies do have some sort of system, right? And then they're looking at upgrades. Yes. Right? And so that adds its own complexity because now we're not going from zero to, you know, 100 or whatever. We're we're going from 50 to 100. Is that a of more complex calculation? Not typically. So we'll look, obviously, at upgrades, of course, maintenance. That's an annual cost. But if you think about offloading a solution that you would have had to pay for otherwise had you not brought on something new, that's a savings for every single year that you then don't use that solution. And um, I did not mention this to begin, but it's important to note that direct benefits are always cash back into the business, whereas we'll get into indirect benefits, which are more centered around productivity. And I think that's more of what uh, HR leaders are able to speak to more confidently. Okay, well, let's talk about that now, like the indirect benefits. So indirect benefits are time savings, productivity increases, most of what you're going to expect from a HR software solution. So examples of this would be reduced time needed to process open enrollment every year, uh, maybe payroll time savings. In this case, it took three weeks before, maybe now it takes two weeks. And self-service, employee self-service, so employees can go and have their questions answered without necessarily having to reach out to someone in HR. Yeah, Maybe that saves about 18 calls a week. Mm-hmm. Of course, that doesn't mean you're not getting any calls, but, you know, that time is vastly reduced. You can kind of focus in on other other things. 
But um, what's important to note about the indirect benefit is that when we calculate ROI, we always apply a correction factor. And that's essentially a percentage number that factors for the inefficient transfer of time. Because just because you save an hour of time doesn't always necessarily mean that you're putting that full hour back into work. Some, maybe someone's just burnt out and they need that extra hour to just take a deep breath and go get lunch. Okay. What about like, you know, one of the selling features, and I don't know how you factor this in, but um, it's there's going to be less headaches. Our staff are going to be happier. Yeah. Do you factor that kind of thing in? That's what we would call an unquantified benefit. So it's something that we absolutely know when we put the narrative together, kind of bring the story behind the numbers into play. But it's interesting because most of the conversations I have, when I ask about benefits, that's always where it starts. It's like, you know, our, our employee experience is better. There are less headaches. But then I say, okay, well, let's look beneath that. And what are the specific areas where that headache is being reduced? And are there any time savings there? And is the answer usually yes? Usually yes. <laughs> yes. The difficulty is actually finding out what those benefits are because sometimes you don't know how much time your employees may be saving. Mm -hmm. So there are some methods that, you know, organizations can use. And I find that surveying employees would probably be the most effective. You can do on-site observation. I say survey would probably be the, the quickest and easiest. Mm -hmm. Then of course you always want to take a conservative approach. So, you know, find the average of the responses. And if you want to undercount it a little bit, that's, I'm just saying that because that's typically what we do. We always want to err on the side of conservancy. That's a good ROI. I'm so glad you asked because we get that question all the time. So I hear a lot about ROIs under 100% not being positive, meaning, you know, it has to be 100% to be whole, and that is not the case. Uh, and I like to use the bank example because it seems a little bit more tangible for everyone. Uh, if the bank is offering you a 5% interest rate and you deposit $100, then you know after a year you have an extra $5 on top of your original investment. So, of course, in specific industries, you'll see, I'm thinking healthcare as an example, you'll see generally lower ROI, maybe 40% to 70%, but that is not a bad ROI, especially for healthcare when you're thinking about how rigid that industry is and how they typically have to kind of make piecemeal changes to keep the peace, essentially. Um, so yeah, and I think there's just a general misunderstanding of ROI. I think it's been kept to a point where people don't even want to go there, right? Especially in HR, especially yes. when you don't believe that there are any tangible benefits there. But I'm here to say that anyone can calculate ROI. Uh, is this a uh, an accepted metric? It is. Yes. If you are looking to go to your CFO and make a business case for an HR software, ROI is it's the finance language. So it'll be very well received. It will be. But will they say this three-year annualized ROI, that's good? Or are they going to want their, a one-year? Or are they going to want, like, is this is three years the standard, the way you're doing it? 
So it would be the one year is the standard and the way that we adhere to that standard is by averaging out the three years. Like I said earlier, some companies want to do a five-year average. Uh, there are some companies that want to do a one-year average. So I think it's important before putting the business case together to go talk to leadership, seeing you know what standard they adhere to or what they think is best for the company when looking at ROI. Okay. Because you don't want to go through this whole long process and then discover that, you know, that wasn't the acceptable standard. Right. Exactly. You know, in, that, in that organization. Yeah. The good thing is that once you have all the data collected, it's it's just about going back and plugging it into a different formula. So I would say okay. the real legwork is around gathering the cost and benefit information. Uh, do you ca calculate the three-year ROI at the end of the three years or do you forecast at? Are you forecasting what the benefit is going to be or do you? Both cases. So we have worked with companies that have only had the software implemented for about a year and then we extend those benefits out for the three years, uh, whereas sometimes we work with a company that's had a software in place for five years and we just look at those three years anyway. So it's all standardized across the deployments that we look at. Why should HR do this? Because HR is not a cost center. I think we need to continue to really shift that mindset that HR is worth investing in. HR is a value driver. I mean, HR, I, I've interviewed a company that, you know, over the course of COVID, they were mainly event-based. They had to like let go of most of their workforce and then bring them back on. But HR kept the business alive. And that's a quote that I'll always remember. And I think especially now, kind of looking at the economy, looking at where the job market is going and really never knowing what's going to happen, HR needs to be equipped to be able to remain agile. So in talking about a good ROI, so a hundred, let's say it's 105%. That means you've recouped all of your money plus 5%. If it's 70%, does that mean you've lost 30% of the money you invested? No, it does not. So there's a fundamental misunderstanding around ROI and what makes an ROI positive. I think the idea is generally that you have to be at 100% or higher to be considered whole on your investment. And the real fact of the matter is that the percentage is really the rate of return rather than how much of your investment you've gotten back. So to bring it to the bank example, if you deposit $100, you have a 5% interest rate from the bank. At the end of that year, you're going to have your initial investment of $100 plus $5 on top of that. So an ROI of 70% means that you have recouped your investment, but then 70% of that investment on top of that. Back to the to the 70% example, uh, you know, if you're depositing your money in a bank, you still have the $100. It was always yours to begin with. Then you get right. Then you get another five bucks. Um, but in the case of ATM, you've invested, you've spent, you spent that money, a hundred thousand dollars. Can't just pull it out of a bank account anymore. You've you've saved, you know, it's a hundred thousand dollars. Let's say to implement, and you've saved seventy thousand dollars. You've still spent thirty thousand dollars at that point. $30,000 down on the implementation of that system. Right. So that would be a negative ROI. 
And if you haven't recouped the investment, then it would be a negative ROI. But that might be negative in the, that might just be the first year. And then you, and then that's why you would look at subsequent years. And that's exactly, that's why we look at the three-year time horizon. It just, it factors in any little bumps in implementation. We've talked to customers that have had to pause their implementations because sometimes there's just not bandwidth there. And sometimes, you know, I brought up healthcare as being more of a rigid industry. I think there's a lot more standardization there that needs to be done before things can be used. So there are delays, they happen. So hence the three-year average. And that is a, a yearly, it's an annualized ROI, but we look at the three years and then take the average of it. Okay. So it may be negative in the first year, but in the second and third, it's positive and therefore overall it's positive. Right. All right. Where can someone learn more about this? I think we've talked, we've used up our time. I think so. It just flew by. Uh, but where to learn more? Uh, of course, the Nucleus Research website. We publish all of our research there. We also have a monthly newsletter, which has links to everything we publish for each month. Um, we have a free online ROI tool, which is great. We, it's basically the formulas that we use when we're calculating ROI. So you can go in there, use the business tool and play around with it and see what kind of ROI a past or maybe future project should yield. Mm -hmm. uh, these are more sales centric, but still a great resource to understanding ROI. We've got our ROI university course, which is online. And our CEO is actually launching a book on June 27th called The Value Sale. No. Okay. That'll be so on. I know it'll be on Amazon. I have to figure out where else it'll be. Uh, you, so you talked about the course. Is that, I'll put a link. I'll put a link in the show notes. But is it free? It is. It's free and it's self-paced. So no need to feel like you have to squeeze it into an afternoon. You can start right. and stop as you wish. Right. I love that actually. Um yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Well, thanks, Evelyn. There was a lot to digest there, but it really does make the whole concept of ROI more accessible to us in HR. We have reached the end of this episode, though. Thanks for listening out there. We'll catch you next time when I talk with another insightful guest.